The book of Daniel tells the story of four Israelite teenagers who, among roughly 5,000 others, are torn from their family and friends and homes and deported to a faraway country in order to serve a pagan king. This true story is fraught with heartache and conspiracy and fiery furnaces and hungry lions and really strange visions. And yet, at every turn, through danger and darkness, God is faithful to guard and to guide Daniel and his friends. As we work our way through this series, I pray The pastors of Oaks Church pray that our faith in God is stoked and that we are emboldened to face the increasing danger and darkness of 21st century America where hostility toward God and his word and his people is deepening. I pray that we are emboldened to follow God against the current of social and political correctness to trust God for understanding, to take God at his word, to fear God more than we fear fire, to honor God at all costs, to seek God for rescue, and to know God will prevail. If you haven't already, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1, or in your sermon uh, journals, the scripture journals. The year is 605 BC. The people of God, the Israelites, are divided into two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, both of which have trampled God's covenant and are wandering after idols. The king of Judah, as we're about to see, is a young man named Jehoiakim who's going to face a defeat that's been in motion for four generations. See, Back in the book of 2 Kings, if we were to turn back in the story and read, we would meet Hezekiah, Jehoiakim's great-great-grandfather, king of Judah, King Hezekiah, and we'd see how he tried to purchase security for the royal family of Judah by striking a deal with the king of Babylon. See, like most kings of Judah, Hezekiah trusted more in political strategy than in God's faithfulness. And as a result... God told Hezekiah through the prophet Isaiah in 2 Kings 20, these words, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house shall be carried to Babylon. Even some of your own sons shall be taken away to the palace of the king of Babylon. Now in Daniel chapter 1, this specific word of judgment is going to be fulfilled. And I invite you to follow along as I read. I'm going to read the whole chapter at hopefully a decent pace. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. 
They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the, chief, uh, uh, and the chief of the, I lost my spot. Shoot, we were in such a good rhythm there, sorry. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, there we go, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in, those, in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you gave understanding to your servant Daniel. And we ask that you would give us understanding of this passage in your word. Teach us what you would have us to learn and train us to live for your glory in the midst of our own danger and darkness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In many action movies, when someone is taken hostage, they're usually forced to wear a black bag over their head in order to disorient and subdue them. Well, the Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar here in Daniel chapter 1, take the black bag strategy to a whole different level in verses 1 through 7. And I think that verses 1 through 7 shine some light on how Babylon had become the first superpower of the ancient world. See, in verses 2 and 3, after conquering Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, with the help of his chief officer, Ashpenaz, seizes and deports nearly 5,000 Israelites from Jerusalem to the land of Shinar, that is the city of Babylon. But notice with me in verses 3 and 4 that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't take a bunch of random Israelites. 
he specifically takes the royals and the nobles. Now catch the providential irony here. He takes the very people that King Hezekiah had tried to protect four generations earlier when he sinfully allied with Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar takes the younger royals and nobles because younger youths are typically not set in their ways and they are therefore easier to indoctrinate. He takes the smarter and good-looking royals and nobles because, well, they will catch on quickly and then they will become influencers to propagate Babylonian thinking. In verses 1 through 7, Nebuchadnezzar's goal is not to have Israelites living in Babylon. His goal is to turn them into Babylonians. He has them brainwashed in the Babylonian language. He has them educated in Babylonian philosophy and literature and science and history and astrology. And then he renames them after Babylonian deities. The name Daniel means God is my judge. But Belteshazzar means the god Marduk will protect. The name Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. But Shadrach means the command of Aku, who is the Babylonian moon god. The name Mishael means who is like God. And the name Meshach means who is like Aku. The name Azariah means the Lord is helper, but Abednego means the servant of Nabu, who is the son of the god Marduk. By the end of chapter 1, three years have gone by, and the fearsome and wicked King Nebuchadnezzar has done everything in his power to erase and to paganize the identity of these four frightened teenagers. But before chapter 1 ends, look at verse 21. In this verse, we're given a tiny little gem that is packed with dynamite. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. King Cyrus, as we'll see in chapter 10, is a Persian. So what verse 21 is telling us at the very outset of this story is that not only will feeble Daniel outlast ferocious Nebuchadnezzar, he will outlast the whole-blown Babylonian empire. For the remainder of our time, let's consider the man of God and the plan of God. Number one, the man of God. So Daniel and his friends had been torn from their parents and homes and everything they had ever known. They had then been forced to walk hundreds of miles into a land they would never leave to be conformed into a people they didn't want to be. They were no doubt frightened and disoriented as hostages of a hostile takeover. But Daniel, verses 8 through 6. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself in Babylon. Yes, he would be forced to learn a new language. Yes, he would be forced to learn the philosophy, history, and astrology of the Babylonians. Yes, he would be called Belteshazzar by his superiors. Nevertheless, 
Although Daniel was immersed in the pagan world of Babylon, Babylon would not win his heart and his mind. Nebuchadnezzar had set Daniel apart for himself, but Daniel would, be, would remain set apart for God. The one thing that Daniel and his friends could control in this uncontrollable situation is what went into their bodies. So in the second half of verse 8, he calmly and respectfully asks permission for he and his friends to abstain from the food and wine that Nebuchadnezzar was providing for all the Israelites in training. Now, it's not that the food and wine were necessarily unclean according to Mosaic law. One commentator explains, at this point, Babylon is exercising control over every aspect of their lives, and they have little means to resist the forces of assimilation. And so Daniel and his friends here seek one of the few opportunities to preserve their identity as set apart from the Lord. Once again, Daniel had been forced into Babylon, but Daniel is resolved to not let Babylon be forced into him. This is a great moment for us to consider two applications under point number one. We'll consider an A and a B. A, this righteous resolve of Daniel and his friends did not happen overnight. What we see throughout verses eight through six is there are many things that we see. But the one that I want to draw our attention to right now is this. Undoubtedly, what we see in these verses is the fruit of godly parents who had prepared and equipped Daniel and his friends while they were under roof. So let me ask those of you who have children under your roofs right now, how are you preparing and equipping your children to face the myriad of defilements that America is aggressively promoting on every channel and article and billboard and street? What will your children say and do when they watch the Disney princess Moana scorn her father's rule because he's too narrow-minded for her liking, only to end up saving the world because anything a father can do, a young disobedient girl can do better? What will your children say and do when the neighbor boy knocks on the door and wants to be announced by the or addressed by the pronouns she and her or they and them or kitty or lizard or whatever? What, were your what will your children say and do when they're encouraged to marry anyone of any gender and if pregnancy gets in the way of their aspirations, end it? How convenient. It's not a matter of if our children will face these defilements. It's a matter of when, and they're already being faced with these defilements. So, I think that the first chapter of Daniel begs the question for us, are we preparing and equipping our children to resolve to honor God in the way that Daniel's parents they're silent heroes in this story. Daniel didn't learn this from nowhere. Daniel was a man of God in the making long before exile 
and so should our children be. A, this righteous resolve of Daniel and his friends did not happen overnight. B, Daniel's righteous resolve was strengthened because he knew that God was with him even in Babylon. We'll see this time and time again throughout this story. But for now, look with me at verse 9. Daniel's superior, Ashpenaz, is scared to let Daniel and his friends consume only vegetables and water because if they don't excel physically, mentally, and spiritually, Nebuchadnezzar is going to cut off his head. And Nebuchadnezzar is known as the most ruthless king at this time in history. He would cut off Ashpenaz's head. Now, notice really quickly, Daniel had obviously demonstrated a slow and steady trustworthiness to Ashpenaz in order that Ashpenaz would make such a vulnerable confession. And in verse 9, look what we're told. God causes Ashpenaz to look favorably upon Daniel. In other words, God is resolved to help Daniel in Daniel's resolve to honor God. Man, that will preach every day until next Sunday and beyond. God is resolved to help us in our resolve to honor him. And look at the end of the 10-day the test. So in, in, in verses 11 through 16, with wisdom beyond Daniel's age, oh my, he proposes a 10-day test to his hesitant superiors. And at the end of the 10-day test, he and his godly friends, whose diets consist of vegetables and water, they visibly exceed the physical well-being of all the other Israelites who seem to be all the other Israelites, some 5,000 of them, seem to be quite content with just becoming Babylonians. But God doesn't even stop there. He does more than provide physical help. In addition to giving Daniel and his friends physical help, we see in verses 17, 18, and 19 that God gives them mental and spiritual help. So much so, no one can hold a candle to their abilities. And in every manner of wisdom and understanding, verse 20, in every manner of wisdom and understanding, King Nebuchadnezzar found these teenagers to be 10 times better than every wise sage, magician, and wicked enchanter in the whole kingdom of Babylon. Now, for the sake of our own theological safety, what we mustn't take from this passage is that our faithfulness to God will always gain us success and honor and esteem. I mean, look at Jesus' life. This passage is not saying that when we are faithful, God will just give us everything and make us impressive in front of the, the world. What this passage is saying, however, and what each of you should take to heart and I should too is this, whoever you are, wherever you live and work and raise your kids, God will supply you with everything you need to walk the walk he's calling you to walk. Do you believe that? I want to say that again. Man, Holy Spirit, give me urgency. Whoever you are, believer, 
Wherever you live and work and raise your kids, God will supply you with everything you need to walk the walk he is calling you to walk. Are you resolved to honor him? When your boss and your coworkers start jumping through ethical loopholes, or when your job is pulling you away from the gathering of saints more often than not, do you believe that God will supply you with everything you need to stand firm, speak up, and honor him? Are you resolved to honor God when your workplace starts to look like Babylon? When you cross the finish line into retirement and detachment and me time vie for your calendar, do you believe that God will supply you with everything you need to stay connected with the body of Christ in worship and giving and serving and discipling? Because one of the greatest schemes of the enemy is when he lures the oldest and wisest believers away from the church at the precise moment when they have the most to offer. Are you resolved to honor God when your schedule starts to look like Babylon's? When your kids are clamoring to be involved in every single sport, program, and activity that their friends are allowed to pursue, although it will mean zero time around the table and around God's word together? Are you resolved to honor God even though everyone else's family looks like Babylon? Whoever you are, fellow believer, and wherever you work, live, raise your kids, and do all the other things, God will supply you and me with everything we need to walk the walk he's calling us to walk. And there's a word there that you need to hear loudly and clearly. God has called you to your precise station in life as much as he called Daniel and his friends to Babylon. Let's look at point number two. The plan of God. In the third year, verse 1, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Nebuchadnezzar's military might was as unstoppable as his thirst for dominance. So when the people of Judah caught his eye, all he had to do was reach out and take them. And yet, mysteriously, We're told in verse 2 that Nebuchadnezzar's victory over Judah was guaranteed by someone greater than he and his military forces. It was the Lord who gave Judah and King Jehoiakim into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, God told Hezekiah that exile would happen back in 2 Kings 20. And at the very outset of this story, God makes sure that it does happen. Nebuchadnezzar acts according to his own sinful will, yes. And yet, in doing so, he acts precisely according to God's righteous will. 
We see this occur time and time again in Scripture. For instance, when Joseph's brothers in Genesis chapter 37 beat and sell him into slavery, we are told a number of times that in tandem with their evil intentions, God intended the very same outcome for good. Now, what good purpose could God possibly have had in giving Joseph to Egypt and Daniel to Babylon? We see it again and again and again and again. In fact, Scripture makes it clear. God's good purpose was to bring about the salvation of many. To bring about the salvation of many. Daniel hadn't been kidnapped by Babylon apart from God's will. He had been called to Babylon according to God's will. In order that he would grow in dependence on God, in order that he would stand out from the crowd by being in Babylon, Babylon, but not of it, as Pastor Ed so wisely shared two weeks ago, and he was being called into Babylon to reflect the character of God there among an unfaithful people of Israel who were all content to become Babylonians and Daniel and his friends will reflect the goodness of God among the pagan Babylonians. God is everywhere in this. Do we see how God's righteous plan mysteriously works in tandem with man's evil plans? We don't have to compute all of this. Daniel's righteous resolve is strengthened because he knows that God is not only with him in Babylon, God brought him to Babylon. If we were to fast forward the clock and read all the way through exile and how the people of Israel are released from exile and then the coming of the Messiah and the birth of the church and listen to the prayer of Peter, James, and John, and the rest of the apostles in Acts chapter one, uh, Acts chapter four. You don't have to flip there. Listen, listen. It's going to tie in. The apostles in the first century church were no doubt frightened by the darkness and danger that was heating up in Roman-occupied Israel all around. But listen to what they remind themselves of, in order that they would be strengthened in their righteous resolve to honor God. Listen to their prayer, Acts chapter four. For truly, in this city. There were gathered against your holy servant, Jesus, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the peoples of Israel, God. All of those peoples were gathered around Jesus to do exactly as your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Are you and I mature enough to recognize that even the defeats and trials and tragedies we face, scooter crashes, workplace taunts, terrorist attacks, are we mature enough to recognize that even these temporal defeats and trials and tragedies Rest in the hand of a sovereign God who is in the business of bringing beauty from the fires he ordains. Do you have a big God theology like that? That's big boy and big girl stuff right there. But we must grasp it. We must grasp that 
big understanding of God if we hope to put on the righteous resolve God calls us to in the midst of danger and darkness. There was a pastor in New Albany, Ohio. I was listening to a sermon that someone had sent me just a couple years ago. He had the audacity to preach that God will only ever materially bless his people and he will never ever under any circumstance cause difficulty or harm. That there is a false prophet who I guarantee you, apart from God's miraculous grace, he will not, he will not stand with a righteous resolve through true danger and darkness. Are you and I, men and women, are you and I resolved to be the men and women whom God is calling us to be as the city of Worcester floats downstream with the world? It's happening. Is our resolve strengthened by this mysterious fact that God on his throne has placed our nation's leaders in their positions? that we through danger and darkness would learn to depend on him more and more as we demonstrate his holiness among an unholy people? God didn't just call Daniel and his friends to a difficult chapter in which they would have to and by God's grace shine the light of God. Our Father has his own skin in the game by sending Christ. Handing Jesus over to Herod and Pontius Pilate and the whole mob in order that his son would die. We're told in Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush the son. Why? To bring about the salvation of many. It is this gospel that we celebrate when we come to the table. For men and women who have been cut to the heart, men and women who are striving after knowing God, obeying God, worshiping God, and loving our God who has first loved us by sending Jesus into the exile of the planet and bearing the shame and reproach of sinners on a cross that they deserve, that I deserve, that you deserve. But the story not ending there, of course, being buried in a tomb that had our name on it, Jesus in glorious life stepped out, guaranteeing us that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one is going to resurrect like that apart from him. And we can, and we will, and we must, and we must shake off by God's grace any Babylonian sense that are hanging on to us. Consider all the ways in which you're starting to adopt the look of America rather than the look of Christ. Let that be the tone of repentance that brings you forward to, to the table. To, to, to together enjoy the feast of the Lord, the body and the blood of Jesus, symbolized in the bread and the cup, broken, poured out for us. Let it call us. As we're coming down here to declare the Lord's death, we're declaring our own death. We're dead in him in the best of ways because we're also alive in him, in his resurrected glory. The Lord's Supper here at Oaks, uh, we, we try to 
We try to encourage parents of younger children to withhold from giving their young children the elements of the, of the bread and the cup until the fruit of the Spirit is at work in their own faith, standing on their own two feet over a period of time. We're not in a rush. So let's take this together as men and women who are cut to the heart by the good news of Jesus, who lived and died and rose according to the plan of God for our forgiveness, our faith, our freedom, and our forever life, which starts right now. And as we leave this place today, we get to go and shine the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Babylon where we're living. Okay? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'll pray it again. Similarly, similarly to how you gave Daniel and his friends understanding, give to us an understanding of your word. Anything that I spoke that is not of you, Lord, help my brothers and sisters to cast out and to forget entirely. But Lord, what is here and what is the meat of your word? Lord, let us chew and savor and prepare us to be. We've all failed already at being the men and women we're called to. Forgive us, Lord, and prepare us as Babylon stokes its fire all around us in this country. Prepare us to live with a righteous resolve that is bolstered by this strengthening belief that God even in the things we don't fully understand, you're in control. You're in control and you're with us through danger and darkness. And you will, and you have had the final victory in the, the, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, whom we now come forward to celebrate in Jesus' name. Amen.